gentlemen, this is a football game. So begins one of the most iconic speeches by one of the most revered coaches in NFL history. Coach of the Green Bay Packers who led them to victory. Oh, yeah, there's always one. Um, in Super Bowls one and two, the legendary Vince Lombardi. As I understand it, just about every season, he would pull the players together in that first meeting and start with the most basic of all realities. Gentlemen, this is a football game. Seems kind of Underwhelming, doesn't it? I mean, these are professional players who devote their lives to playing that sport. These are men who have spent years learning the nuances of that game. Certainly, something as pedantic as a football's reality or identity should be old hat to them. He did that every year as a way to remind them, before we get to all the plays, before we get to all the creativity we might have on offense or defense, before we get to any of the other stuff that will be a part of our year as a football team that hopefully will culminate in another win of the Super Bowl, we've got to start with the very, very basics. And so that's what we're going to do today. In effect, I'm going to say, church, this is a football game. And for the next few minutes, look at some of the things that we as a church have identified as key to who we are and to what we're about. Now, I know we have folks that maybe uh, some of our winter residents are back. Let's hear it for our winter residents that are getting back into town. Yay. So, so you have churches that you kind of split time with that, maybe you're more your home church. We have guests in our, our area, um, maybe visiting our part of the world. Uh, there's been a lot of people visiting our part of the world. I'm guessing by the time we're done in here, a lot of those people will be leaving our part of the world. So if you're going north after church, Godspeed. Because that's the only speed you're going to get. And so if you're a guest today and you have a church home somewhere else, what I'm going to say is sort of crafted around who we are and what we've identified as our sort of mission statement and marching orders, if you will, kind of the basics of who we are. But these things are, I, I believe, biblical. In fact, when we came up with these concepts, we spent months on Sunday night, when there was such a thing as Sunday night service many years ago, uh, going through all the things that we could find in Scripture about the church and what it was and what it was about and what it was to do. And we came up with uh, a mission statement that we boiled down into three phrases. And that's really going to be the outline today of what we're talking about and, and how we take our, our mission statement, what we say is our kind of basic core identity, belief, and hopefully structure around which we live revolved around these three phrases, to know Christ, to become like Christ, and to make Christ known. I know we throw some words in there at the beginning and the end, but that is sort of the, I hope, a little bit memorable 
part of that mission statement. And so today I just want to walk through those three things as our way of saying on this first Sunday of 2016, church, this is the stuff. This is what we're about. This is why we do what we do. This is why you got up this morning. This is why you come to a place like this. And this is why uh, you, hopefully you live your life in spite of all the other stuff that competes for your attention. Somewhere in that life are these three realities. Let's start, number one, knowing Christ. Why would we start there? I'm so glad you asked. You've asked the best question today. Because Jesus himself said in John 17, verse 3, Now this is eternal life. Okay, that sounds like if he's going to tell me what eternal life is, I might want to pay attention. Eternal life, life forever, life that never ends, that goes on and on. We spend our entire mortal lives, it seems like, fighting off illness and sickness and hoping to delay the inevitability of the thing that 100% of people that have ever lived have faced, and that is death. And somehow, even in our mortal way of thinking, we want some measure of immortality, whether it's uh, the legacy of our family or, or the legacy of our finances or our business or whatever it might be. Jesus says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We start out with knowing Christ because knowing Christ is at its essence, eternal life. We are a church. Most people would place church in the category of religion. You may have heard of religion. There are lots of religions, yes? In fact, if we were just to say Christianity is one form of religion, boy, there's a lot of brand names of Christianity. Have you noticed? And then, King Largo is not a big place. Cavanier in, and you could start at 106 and move south, and you would see Baptist, and, and uh, there was Nazarene for a while, there's Community Covenant, there's Community, there's Methodist, there's Lutheran, there's Episcopalian, oh, there's Catholic, there's probably a few others I can't recall right now off the top of my head, there's a bunch of varieties of Christianity, and then let's go beyond that. We might say non-Christian religions or other faiths, there are seems like every time you turn around, a new version of religion. I, I like the idea that someone kind of defined religion this way. Religion is man's attempt to reach God. And I want you to, to hear me say this today. We don't practice religion here. Because no matter how hard we try, no matter how good we try to be, we will never be good enough to reach God. In fact, that's part of what we have to embrace as our identity as humans, is one of the things that we stand in contrast to the world at large. You hear all the time things like, mankind is inherently good. Have you been driving these last few days? Tell me, just based on your limited experience in traffic in the Keys, since December 26th, is mankind inherently good? Is mankind inherently patient and kind and deferential to others? I have sat at a light 
And I swear the person behind me had their finger hovering over the horn. And as soon as the first hint of green would come upon the light, have you been there? I was in line at the light, and beside me was kind of the right turning lane, and the light was red. And it wasn't a no-turn-on-red sort of a thing, but because everybody's in a hurry. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, The person in the second court in line wanted the person directly in front of them to go. And they communicated this desire with the horn, among other things. They started with the horn. We'll just leave it at that. At which point, I heard this, and I'm like, I'm, I'm looking this way, and it's the one up here by Capital Bank and Walgreens. And, you know, that's, it's hard to see if you're in the right turn lane depending on what's happening coming south because of the curve and the speed at which they're coming. And the person that was there was being patient, was being careful, didn't want to take a chance. We've all been there. Like, I think I can make it. Somebody told me, it might have been Dave, I think he said, if I think I, think I can make it, that means I'm taking a chance and I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm just going to wait. But we've kind of been there, we've been in a hurry. And so this person that was second in line that couldn't see because I'm in the way, decided the person in front of them wasn't moving fast enough and honked. And the person beside me that was first in line, I loved it, rolled down their window, reached their hand out and pointed at the red light or something up there. I assume it was the red light. It was this finger, just being careful. It was that finger, like, the light is red, give me a break. But mankind is inherently good. I'm sure you all have stories that you could tell just in that small area. But what we what we believe the Bible teaches in man, is mankind is not inherently good. Mankind is born sinful. The inclinations of our life are toward sin. Jeremiah puts it this way: the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's pretty strong language, but it communicates what we think is at heart the issue with humanity. We are naturally turned far from God, not naturally inclined toward Him. And so we believe that everyone who's ever lived can never, no matter how good they are, do enough to make it to God. So we don't want to be known as a religion. We don't want to be a church that practices religion. No, it's put elsewhere, and it's rather cliche, maybe you would think, but you've heard it probably said, Christianity is not a religion, but it's a relationship, we say. And that's because at heart, Jesus says, if you want eternal life, and if I were to say eternal life to you, you would probably think, if you want to go to heaven when you die. That's kind of how we equate the two. If you want that, here's how you get it. He doesn't say, make sure you're at church every Sunday. He doesn't say, make sure you give a certain percentage of your income. He doesn't say, make sure you are kind to your neighbor. He doesn't say all of those things. He says, this is eternal life. Knowing God and knowing me. Knowing Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. And so we begin by saying, as a church, we exist to help people know God because we believe that is what is most important. We are inherently sinful. We are inherently far from God. And no matter how hard we try, we can't reach God. But instead, God has reached down to us through Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh. Jesus 
became a human being and lived on this earth. And he was the only one ever who was able to do it perfectly and offered himself as the sacrifice on the cross and rose again as a symbol that he was victorious over the thing that we spend our whole lives avoiding and, and putting off and invites us to know him that we could one day spend eternity with him. Now that's important because we live in a world that increasingly is moving towards some different views of, if I may say it this way, the exclusivity of Christ. There, I'm just going to throw three out real quick because these are probably three of the the most uh, well-known ones. The first uh, was popularized a few years ago by a book entitled Love Wins. And the idea is called universalism. And behind universalism is the belief that God is so good and so loving that he would never separate anybody from him in a place like hell. That would never happen. That ultimately, in the end, God's love will win out and everybody will be with him in heaven forever. doesn't matter how you live. Nothing between now and then matters. Ultimately, God is just that good and that loving and everybody makes the cut. Been rejected from very early on in church history by many theologians and many scholars. And we uphold this idea that eternal life is knowing Christ. Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we say, no, that's not in fact the case. Everybody doesn't make it because God is so loving. Only those who place their faith in Jesus Christ and what he did and enter into a relationship with God through Jesus, recognizing their sinfulness and His sacrifice, ultimately make it. Not because of anything they've done to reach Him, but because of what He has done to reach down to us. So we we reject the idea that universally, somehow, God's love wins. Now, God is love. We don't reject that idea at all. We don't reject the idea that God so loved the world. We believe... He loves everybody that's ever been created in His image. But we also believe that there's this narrow way, this narrow gate, and His name is Jesus, and it's the way to the Father. Another way that people look at faith is is called syncretism. Put simply, this is all roads lead to God. It doesn't matter what religious path you take. Ultimately, they all point to God. We also would reject that for the same reasons. We hold up, as I said, the exclusivity and the unique purpose and place of Jesus Christ that the only way to the Father is through Him. So taking the Hindu path or the Buddhist path or the Muslim path or whatever other paths there are out there, they don't end up at the same place. In fact, somebody kind of, it might have been Tom, I think one time we were having this discussion. He says, you know, it's kind of true that all roads lead to God in this sense. One day... Everyone will stand before the judgment seat. And we'll find out that that's where the roads diverge. Two roads diverge with the judgment seat of Christ. (laughs) And I hope that you took the Christ road because that leads to eternal life, to know Him. And the third one is is called inclusivism. This is the idea that they uphold the fact that Christ is important but also point out that all these other faiths somehow point to Christ 
and you don't have to go through him explicitly, but somehow in all of these other faiths is enough hints of Christ that you get the general idea and you make your own. Which is interesting, um, which is sort of a blend between the first two. So again, we, we believe that if this is true, that this is eternal life, that we know God, the only true God, by the way, not just one of many gods, and Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, then we reject these things. And we say, we want people to know God. We don't want them to have a a confused view of God that other religions will get. We don't want them to, to find these ideas that mix and ultimately sort of kind of get them there. No, we think God has made it possible that we can know him personally. And the, the idea in much of Scripture, the, the knowing of God is, is meant as a close, intimate knowing, not a sort of kind of knowing. It's, a, it's the idea that you can know God even as you are known, one scripture says. And so we hold to that as the idea of well, that's what we want to be about. One of my um, scriptures I want to, one of the verses I want to point out too that helps us see this is in Luke chapter 7, verse 47. It's, in, it's the end of a long passage and Jesus kind of makes a principle here. What happens in this, this episode is uh, Jesus is at a, a religious leader's house and a woman who doesn't have a good reputation in town comes in. And she goes straight to Jesus, and she begins uh, weeping, and by her tears is washing his feet, and, and she fumes him. And the people around there, it's, it's a great passage because it says in Scripture, uh, the, the religious leaders were thinking, if he only knew who this person was, he wouldn't let this happen. And they were thinking, and Jesus answers their thoughts. knows what they're thinking and responds to it. He sums it up by saying this in verse 47, Luke 7, 47. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little, loves little. And this is where you and I need to grapple with this, because I think what happens sometimes when we talk about knowing Christ, and, and when I talk about these other ideas, here's what we want to do. We want to elevate ourselves, and that's not my intention at all. I'm not trying to say, look, we got it right and everybody else got it wrong. Got it. Ooh, that's has it wrong. That's not the point. We're not, I'm not saying we're any better than anybody else. My life, I became a believer very young. I was about seven years old, grew up in church. When I prayed to receive Christ as Savior, was baptized, and believe that was the moment that my life changed for eternity. I came to know God and His Son, Jesus Christ, in that moment. Now, seven years old, I hadn't robbed any banks. I hadn't done anything particularly immoral. I hadn't even developed, you know, some of the, the, the desires that tend to lead us down those ways. I hadn't been a, an addict, a, a drug user, a, a, a drunk. I was seven. But I knew in that moment I needed a Savior. And you might say, if you heard my testimony, I went from there, stayed in church, and went to school and seminary and, and preacher at 20-something. I probably lived a pretty good life. I actually wasn't much of a rebel. I didn't, uh, you know, do much to disobey my parents. I was a pretty good kid um, as a rule. But here's the thing that, that I have to be careful, and maybe we have to as a, as a whole be careful about too, is that didn't give me any better standing with God. See, these, these religious leaders are around, and they've lived their whole life in 
Well, I live in church world. I guess they were in temple world. Their whole life was about the temple and the sacrifices and the law and keeping the law. And they were diligent about it. You know, they tied not only of money, but they tied the spices they were smelling. Could you imagine? You go to the store and buy some cinnamon and measure out 10% and bring it to the church next Sunday? Don't do that. We're good. We've got plenty of cinnamon. Right, Rick? But, but they were that specific about it. They didn't want to miss anything. And so they thought, God must be impressed with that. And they saw this woman who wasn't of the best reputation and thought, God is not impressed with her. God would avoid that associating with that kind of person because she's so bad. Everybody knows how bad she is. And Jesus looks at them at the end and says, listen, this woman and her expression of faith shows that she understands what it took to receive forgiveness. She gets it. She's come to terms with the sin in her life. And she's expressing it in this sorrow, in this gratitude even, in this moment. You, you didn't wash my feet when I came in, and yet she hasn't stopped washing my feet with her tears. And you didn't offer me anything to welcome me into your home, and yet she's brought this perfume. Why? Because she's been forgiven a lot. And she loves a lot. And we as Christians need to balance our, our theological rightness, we might say, with our moral wrongness. Everyone in this room is a sinner. Everyone in this room desperately needs a Savior. And there's no one in here that we can look, or no one out there, we might say. No one anywhere on this world that we can look at them and say, well, they need a Savior worse than I. I'm better than them. I'm closer to God because I've lived. No. No. We are all short of the glory of God as Christians. And because we see ourselves as the recipient of this great forgiveness from God. We want to be people who love God in a big way, in an extravagant way. We want to be people who know Christ and press into Him and seek after Him and pursue Him as He's pursued us because we recognize the length He went to to purchase our salvation and we don't want to miss anything of what He might have for us. I, I've illustrated it this way before, but it bears repeating. Let's say we were in a situation that got very dangerous very quickly. Maybe it was you were about to be robbed. And someone was holding you at gunpoint. And in the area where this was happening, you had heard about this group that was robbing people and to make sure there were no witnesses, not only robbing them, but killing them. And you were pretty sure this was exactly what was happening because you were in that part of the area where these crimes were happening and you knew these. The likelihood is these people that were about to hold you up aren't just going to take your wallet or take your purse. They were going to shoot you and leave you for dead. And just at the last possible second, right when you thought there was no hope, someone stepped in and saved you. Just as they were raising the gun, someone dove between you and the assailant and took the bullet for you. And somehow that threw off the whole situation and you escaped, but they went for the ICU because of the injuries. How many of you would visit that person in the ICU? Wouldn't you? How many of you would want to know 
did they make it? Oh, I hope, I hope they made it. I hope that what they did for me somehow doesn't cost them their life. How many of you might want to keep in touch with that person? Most of us would feel a debt of gratitude to the person who put their life on the line for us. And what Jesus has done is just that. We were facing certain doom. And Jesus stepped in and took upon himself what was rightfully ours by the cross. And now offers us forgiveness. And our lives can be spent knowing him and understanding what he has done for us, the depth of the forgiveness that we have received until we spend our life in knowing him and that love we love him. That's, isn't that the greatest commandment? That we would love the Lord our God. Not worship, not serve, not give to, not obey, but that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we, we want to be people that understand the exclusivity of Christ, that he is the one through whom all will gain salvation. And the only way through whom people gain salvation to know him and to know, is to know the only true God. But we also want to have that understanding of what he has done for us, the depth of that love that motivates us to seek after him, to know him more deeply. Not just, hey, you know, I've got my fire insurance. Thank you, Jesus. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart. Amen. And I don't have to ever think about it again. No, I recognize that I was as good as dead in my sins. Save me from that. To know Christ means all of that to us as a church. The second phrase is to become like Christ. We know Christ, and having known Christ, the next step is to become more like Him. And Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 is the beginning of this beautiful hymn that describes who Jesus is. A hymn as in what they probably used in worship in some of the earliest church services. We don't have the tune for it, and I won't sing it for you. Amen? But, this is what we think is there. And he starts, before he gets into the, to the details of this praise hymn to Christ, he says in verse 5, I put the ESV up here because I like the wording, is have this mind among yourselves, that which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves. I like that word among. The idea being the communal aspect. In fact, last year, First Sunday, I think, of January, I said, here's my word for the year. What was my word for the year? I just went away. Don't make me say the same. Games don't start till morning. I don't know. What was it? It was community. What was it? I'm glad it stuck. I can see last year. That was one of the words that, that we started with, the 40 days in the word. And the idea was to build community among each other. And I like that word here because Paul says in this great ode or this great hymn to Jesus, let this mind be among yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, to become like him, to begin to think like him, to have his character be worked into our lives, that when people see us as his people and how we act and react toward one another and toward the world at large, they see in us the mind of Christ. They see in us the character of Christ. They see in us the desires and the actions of Christ to be conformed to his likeness, Paul would say elsewhere. 
In fact, one of the great verses we use whenever there's difficulty is Romans 8, 28, right? And in all things, what's the rest? God works together. God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. I've memorized it in like four different translations, so they all kind of go the same. But nonetheless, we know that one. And if something is bad, there's a difficulty. We'll often quote that. We know that in all things, even in this difficult situation, God is working for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. You know, the next verse gives us a little insight into why that's true. Verse 29 says this, For or because we know that he works all things for good because those God foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We know Christ. That's the first step, that salvation step. We we live a life of love toward Christ for what he has done, and part of that will manifest itself as we become more and more like him. Do you want a suggestion of how you can become more like Christ? I have something. Okay, never mind. I don't think you want this. I'm going to tell you anyway. I have an idea. One way that I've found in my life to become more like Christ, this is no surprise, is to spend time studying the Bible, the Word of God. But not only studying the Word of God, studying it with other people. Because what we find elsewhere, there's a lot of verses like iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. We get together in small groups and study God's Word together. And what what I found, and if you've been in these, these groups, you've probably found it too. You're in this group, and there's somebody else in there, and, and maybe they have an issue. They have something they don't understand, or they have something they're going through, or they have, they have a question. And it's like, you have been in that exact situation, or you have been through those same doubts or questions, and, and it's like you're put in the room together for the specific purpose of connecting so that you can help encourage them in the midst of their difficulty. You can comfort them or, or point them in the right direction. Right? That happens. And, and other times, it's you that comes in, and, and life is overwhelming, or there's a lot of questions, or you, you're not sure about things, and it seems like somehow in that group, you connect with somebody else who understands and has been through and has seen the other side of that situation that you're in and can encourage you through it and, and maybe pray with you through it and maybe be that person when, when you're really down you can give a call to. So, so I would suggest one way to help build the character of Christ into your life is not only to study the Bible, but find other people to study it with. And wouldn't you know it? We have a lot of new studies going. Aren't you excited? There's a lot of build-up, so yes. One o'clock, that's three hours from now. And they're being recorded, so I, I don't need them. That, that is something that, that we offer. Uh, ladies, got some good news for you. You have three choices. Guys, I don't know how many you have. Maybe one. <laughs> but ladies, they're in the bulletin. Two of them are in the bulletin. The Thursday morning group is cranking back up on the 14th. Not this Thursday, but Thursday next. Um, there's two options on Thursday morning. Uh, Hosea by Jennifer Rothschild, or Beautiful Mess. I don't know who wrote that, but both of those studies are starting. Starting the 14th. And then Lynn starting her Thursday night study that night at 6. 
The name of the study is Anonymous. I don't know what that means. I'm actually intrigued, but I can't go because it's for ladies. Bummer. And it's anonymous, yes. Fair enough. So those are three coming up. Um, We have several groups that meet every Sunday. Right after the worship service, there's places you can go and do that. Uh, Rick is leading a a group on Wednesday nights at 7, and it's designed toward recovery. Um, And and here's the thing. You probably all need to recover from something. Say, oh, well, that's a 12-step thing. I, I, I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't chew, and I don't go with girls that do, right? So, um, no. You think, I'm not a user? What The principles of Scripture we find are sufficient for whatever it is that we turn to instead of Christ to kind of meet our needs. Sometimes it's not a substance or a drink. Sometimes it's we're baptized. that that we turn to. You're depressed. Go to, go to the store and get your pint of hog and dogs and a spoon. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Right? Probably not the healthiest plan. We all have things we turn So that might be a, a place you'll find encouragement. Yes, for the, the things that we identify as addictions or needing recovery, but also to find fellowship with people that are willing to admit, you know, I've, I've got something, and I hope I'm describing this right, and if I'm not, you can you have a rebuttal witness when I'm done. Okay. Rick is ready and waiting for you. Um, so so that's another option. On Wednesday night, we have our Bible study that we're going through. Hey, here's at 6 o'clock after our, our dinner, we have Bible study and prayer. We are studying. Are you ready for this? This is going to excite you to no end. You are going to just jump for joy. We're studying Leviticus. I know. We just started. Like, we did the introduction. Leviticus. Leviticus. It's a good book. It made the top 66. I'm going with that. Um, And the guys, they meet on Thursday, and and Carlos put the last group together. Do you have any plans coming up? Okay. So that'll be, we'll, we'll give you the, the, the date on that, and that usually meets Thursdays as well. So these are places that, that you can connect with other believers, opening the Word of God. There's usually homework, so you have some help. You know, one of the hardest things is we might make a resolution. I want to read the Bible more. And then you're like, well, what do I read today? Well, some of these studies have suggestions. So you're kind of studying a topic, and it says, okay, on Monday, go through these questions and read these scriptures. So it's, a help, it's another way to help you keep on that track. But, but the point is, we need to grow in Christ-likeness. As we know Christ, as we understand the great forgiveness He has given us, the next step is that our lives need to become more and more like Him. To use the theological terms, we might say it's salvation, knowing Christ, and then the process of sanctification to become like Christ, which brings us to point number three, to make Christ known. Several times in Scripture, I think four, maybe five, we have what's called the Great Commission. And the one I want to look at today is found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts 1, 8 says this, And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And here's what I like about this one. It kind of gives us an outline. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, 
This was said when the disciples were gathered in an upper room in the city of, any guesses? Jerusalem. So he's saying, right here where you are, you can be my witnesses. I've placed you here. And, and that could be your neighborhood. It could be your workplace. It could be your, your acquaintances. All those places are sort of like the Jerusalem of your life, the place where you are that God has you uniquely situated as a way to tell other people about him. In Judea, that's like a little bit further out. And in Samaria, and that's a little bit further out. And as always on God's mind and to the ends of the earth, God's ultimate goal is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so we take seriously what we are to do. Having known Christ and having his character being built in our life, we then want to tell others about who he is and what he has done and how they too can know him and be a part of his family and have the gift of eternal life and have their lives changed by his power and presence in their life so that naturally they'll want to tell somebody else about what Christ has done for them and they'll tell two friends and so on and so on. Let's not forget to mention the mission. Hairspray. Shampoo. That's why I didn't remember. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. And I love this last phrase, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. You know, in our world, I think those two are like polar opposites. At least how I see it in church world. Seems like we have people that like to camp out on the truth side be right and be theological and be deep or whatever word you want. And sometimes be harsh about it. To be in your face about truth. Now, I have no problem with saying to you, I believe the Bible is the inerrant, inspired word of God. It is truth without any mixture of error. I have no problem saying that. Jesus was the word that became flesh. He was the way, the truth, and the life. Right? And he spoke truth to people, didn't he? Absolutely. But he's full of both truth and grace. And here's the other extreme. This is the extreme where, you know, truth is sort of hard to figure out, and who knows, and we're not sure, and the Bible's kind of old, and we can't really hang on it. So I, I think, you know... Whatever, just want to just want to love people, and that's good. We need to love people. Jesus said, "Love me." And you know what the second commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. So we gotta love people. But what happens when you put those two things together? When you put those two things together, when you have a man like Jesus, full of grace and truth, perfectly combined, perfectly meshed in who he was and how he acted, some amazing things. Best observations I've heard about him is this: that even the worst of sinners were never worried about getting close to Jesus. In fact, it was like the worst of sinners, as we might call them, 
were almost attracted to him. They would seek him out. They would want to be near him. Not because he would pat him on the head and say, oh, it's okay, I know you're trying your best. No, sometimes he would look them in the eye and tell them all about themselves. Yeah, it's true. You don't have a husband. The man you're with now isn't your husband, and he's one of five or six you've had in your life. Yep, you got that right. That's true. Right? But a, a few verses later, this woman is convinced this man who spoke truth that seems harsh was the Messiah, and she went to tell the whole town about it because he was also full of grace. that woman we started with in Luke chapter 7 sought Jesus out. Went to a place she normally wouldn't go. She went to the church leader's house. She went to the religious guy's house. She knew she wasn't welcome there. She knew she had no business being there. She knew if Jesus wasn't there, she wouldn't make it past the front door. But Jesus is there and she goes straight for him because she understood. She had been forgiven much. And she wanted to express that we are all grace people who are sharing God's grace. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, I don't care if you've been a Christian for a day or 50, 60, 70 years, you are a recipient of the grace of God and you did not deserve it. Nothing about you commended yourself to God. But He lavished His that grace on you to go and to tell others about this one who is full of grace, yes, and full of truth, too. And so we are just grace people sharing grace wherever we go. Wherever we get the opportunity. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together today. And it seems like another gentlemen, this is a football moment, doesn't it? Because what, what's happening in, in these elements? A, a small platter with pieces of bread reminding us of the broken body of Jesus. And a small cup with some juice in it reminding us of the blood Jesus shed on the cross to purchase our salvation. The basic. says to his disciples, as often as you do this, he says, as Paul says to the disciples, as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We're, we're, we're going to do that. We're going to take these elements and we're going to proclaim the Lord's death. And I want it to be sort of a two-prong thing. Prong one is remind yourself, as much as we've done today, of the love of God and the lengths to which he was willing to go so that you could be called his child, adopted as his son and daughter, and receive all the glories and eternity to heaven. This supper contains the symbol for us reminding of that grace. But also, the second prong of this supper together today would be a reminder that the Jesus who died for you died so that whosoever will may 
never believe in you. I'm not going to tell you that. I'm not going to tell you that. But this is what I want you to do. I want you to think over these next few minutes as we take things. After you thank God and kind of marinate in what He has done for you, ask Him to tell you that one person. Just one person this year, 364, three days left in the year, think of it this way, that you could make Christ known to them. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to sit down with them and say, hey, listen, um, you were the guy tonight laying curtains in the assembly of God in heaven. That's how we were taught as I was growing up to share our faith. And you might have that opportunity. There's nothing wrong with it. That's not what I'm necessarily talking about. It might be in a conversation that you're having where that person, there's, there's a crack in the door, and you're praying, God, this person, I'm going to ask you to put this person on my mind. I'm going to ask you to show me when is the right time that I can share what you mean to me with this individual. Make that opening. Swing the door open wide and ring a bell, God. I don't want to miss it, right? Just help me to know. And it might be just telling your story you became a believer, or what God is doing in your life right now, or, or a situation that you were overwhelmed by, that God intervened and answered and worked on your behalf, and you could tell them, hey, that's the whole story, because that's what So, so that's what I, I want you to do as we're taking these elements. And while we're doing it, I'm going to play a song that might play a couple times. This song has been in my head for like two weeks. It's by Matthew West. It's called Grace Wind. kind of a pop song. It's not like the typical meditative Lord's Supper song. I get that, so I'm sorry if that's kind of disruptive, but if you can also listen to the words that are there, and it deals with both of those songs. A person who says, I understand in my own life, grace won. And I understand that same grace is available. 